Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptid Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. A quick intro regarding this week's Revolutions Per Movie. The original recording of this conversation was corrupted, so we had to use the backup. We apologize for any crunchiness, but maybe you could think of this episode as equal to the sonic quality of the falls, or you are missing winner of the series. Enjoy! This week I'm speaking to Paul Hanley, who was the drummer in the fall from 1980 to 1985 and now plays with the House of All. Alongside his brother Steve, he hosts the popular podcast series Oh Brother and has published two books, Leave the Capital, A History of Manchester Music and 13 Recordings, and Have a Bleeding Guest, The Story of Hex and Duction Hour. Paul, I'm so excited you're here. I'm a big fan. Thank you. No, it's nice to be here. I was really excited uh, when I reached out to you about this that you wanted to talk about Rude Boy because you said you could talk about it for three hours. Um, well, at least. <laughs> <laughs> And then you sent me a picture of you standing next to, I guess you'd say lead actor, although I don't know if he would say yeah. he was an actor, uh, Ray Gange. Yes, that's right. Before we talk about the movie, can you tell me about your history with The Clash when you first heard them, what they meant to you? Yeah, well, um, so 1978, the beginning of 1978, Steve, my brother, brought home another music in a different kitchen, which was the Buscock's first album, the day it was released. And so that from that kind of moment on, really, I was a massive Buscock's fan. Buscock's were my favourite band. But then when I went to, obviously I got into the fall then, but then when I went to college to do my A-levels, which is like, um, it's not quite what college is in the US, so it's, that's between the ages of 16 and 18. Uh, while, while I was in the fall, uh, I, I made some mates there, one of whom was a massive Clash fan, so... He kind of brought the clash. To, I mean, I was obviously aware of the clash, but I didn't. I wasn't really a, that massive a fan. I thought they were good, but I'd only heard a few singles. But he was a huge uh, clash fan. And around that time, so around the eighties, was just when video was getting going. So that um, Rude Boy came out. But then once home video came, it was like one of the few things you could get. So I got into the clash quite quite a big way. But um, the thing about that was that. It was quite hard to get film of bands. I mean, there, there wasn't really a Buscox from my favorite band. You couldn't get film of them. There, there was they were on the old grey whistle test, so that was two songs. And there was a documentary about them made when they were two years old, but that was only shown in like the local Manchester area. But actual film of your favorite bands was it was quite a uh, a coup to get some because obviously television was massively transitory. You saw something on the TV, that was it, it was gone. So when video started, that was the, the fact that the clash had a film was really big. I mean, obviously there was the there was the great rock and roll swindle was the other one which came out about the same time, but that was a completely different beast. So yeah, so I, I I I we ended up watching, we must have ended up watching Rude Boy about 300 times. I think there was a stage I could probably have I could probably have recited it off by heart, but I can still do most of the clash bits now. 
So yeah, so it, it was it was doubly important. Really, it was a great it was catching a great band live, but it was also great because there was no other there was no other films really. So you just ended up watching it a million times. Yeah, we had the same experience uh, over here in the U.S. where you either saw a film in like a repertory theater, like we saw I saw Dance Craze when it came out, yeah, or Urga Music War, but most of the stuff was videotape or cable was in its infancy. So there were shows over here like Night Flight that would play, mm-hmm. you know, edited versions of films like Smithereens with Richard Hell or things like yeah. that. But you're right. There was so little access. And especially with The Clash, there was just it was still before they broke through. Yeah. You know, you were in a band that was moving in parallel in a scene alongside The Clash. What did your brother and what did Mark and Kay think? I think Mark had a bit of a grudging like for The Clash. I don't think he was massively impressed with some of of uh, Joe's lyrics, but I think musically, they had, they were coming from a similar kind of broad spectrum as he was. So you know, he was a big rockabilly fan, and he liked reggae, and so I think he, he you know, I th- he, I don't think he would like to admit it too much, but he quite liked the Clash, and at the Clash, the Fall famously supported the Clash at Bonds in New York. I wasn't there; I was at home doing uh, at college because I wasn't old enough to go, but. Uh, <laughs> That's a oh, particularly brutal member, but yeah. So, um, Joe, <laughs> Joe Strummer uh, caught sight of Mark and came up to him and said, "I bet you hate us, don't you?" Thinking Mark would be contemptuous of their kind of not embracing of of, of Americana, I suppose, embracing of Americana, and they're also their push to go overground. You know, I think I think he thought Mark would see them as selling out, but I, don't, I think he misread Mark. I don't think that was what Mark, what Mark was about. It might have been what Kay was about, but Mark said, no, no, I don't hate you at all. And the only the one record I do remember him saying to me that he really liked was Know Your Rights, which he obviously, he didn't like the lyrics. He thought the lyrics were appalling, but he thought the music was fantastic. So, yeah, I can say he had a bit of a respect for The Clash, I think. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so sorry about your loss there uh, in 19... Was that 1981? 1981, but, I've, you know, it's, it's all water under the bridge now. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brutal, uh, though, missing out and stuff like that, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, you got to experience enough, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course, um, yeah. So, you know, before we get into just a little history on the film, I don't know if you've ever seen A Bigger Splash, the film that... The Hockney one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it. I know of it, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, so the film was directed by David Mengay and Jack Hazen, and they'd made a pseudo documentary with David Hockney um, and his peers and his his lover uh, called The Bigger Splash. It was actually yeah. nominated for a BAFTA for Best Documentary and I think critically did much better than um, Rude Boy did, which seemed divisive when it came out because the film is part documentary and yes. uh, part part fiction. And director David Mengay met 18-year-old punk Ray Gange. There's, it's debatable whether it was a record store at, at shows, struck up a friendship with them. You know, they wanted to make a film similar to uh, Bigger Splash, but in the punk movement. And asked Ray yeah. who was the best band. Ray said, The Clash, they're the best. And Ray uh, was friends with Joe Strummer. And so David kept kind of pushing Ray to be in a film that he didn't really want to be in. <laughs> As uh, somebody who is, you know, left his dead end job to go roadie for his favorite band, the Clash uh, famously disavowed the film. Joe Strummer said it wasn't any good. We didn't like what they were doing with black people because they were showing them dipping in the pockets, and then they were shown being done for something that was only their role in the film. Who wants to propagate that? Yep. That's what the right wing use. 
All Blacks Are Muggers, which is a load of rubbish. And I've never seen it since, nor has any of The Clash. And uh, Strummer added that the band had no further contact with the directors after the film was shot and never received any payments from them. But arguably the film, which is also peppered with Margaret Thatcher speeches, the National Front protests and their rallies, and and an amazing abundance of access to The Clash um, in the studio and live, make it a really strange, hypnotic film. Could you make sense of it when it first came out? Did it resonate with you? I don't, well, I mean, by anybody's standards, it's it's a strange film, isn't it? Because it's it, it's neither one thing or the other in a lot of ways. I mean, you, if you want to get, they're trying to, you know, they're drawing a parallel between the sort of people who want to avoid politics drifting to the right, which is what the country did, I suppose, in 1979. I mean, some of the film of the National Front rallies is astonishing. The, Incredible rhetoric that they were coming out with, the rhetoric that they were coming out with openly on the streets, and then you had Thatcher kind of not disavowing that enough, and riding in on the back of people who who didn't quite want to nail their colours to the NF mast, but were right wing enough to vote a Conservative government. I mean, thank God nothing like that happens in UK today, but um, but it's a bit of a mishmash the film, and that's a really there's a really strange decision that to have the intercuts with the the three black guys getting arrested for pickpocketing on the on the on the buses i think they are because it they're guilty they, they, they're shown on film doing what they're accused of right so i'm not quite sure what the what story they were trying to tell there i mean you, you, i mean obviously they were brutally treated by the police i mean completely uh, unnecessarily because you know they could have come quietly or whatever but they showed them doing the crime so i'm not quite sure well, it doesn't fit. It's kind of shoehorned in, and it's not really necessary, I don't think. So I'm not. I'm never quite sure what the, what that film is trying to say. I mean, it is a, quite ahead of its time in the kind of constructed reality thing. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. And I, I heard an interview with one of the directors where he, I don't think it really stood up, but he said that the point of the film was to show that if you were white and you wanted to be an anarchist um, and shatter the government. You could be a millionaire, but if you're black um, and you did anything, you were, you know, sent to jail. I, I don't. That I don't, doesn't work. That doesn't no. work, does it? Because because A, the class were clearly not millionaires, and B, and B got sent to jail. <laughs> yeah, totally. That, that's some of my yeah. favorite footage. Is them just walking out of court. Yeah. And standing there, I, I think there's you can't find a more charismatic band that when they're just standing around looking awkward. Yeah, you just want to lean in and be with them. They're just they're incredible. Um, it's true that they, they manage to look awkward and cool at the same time, which is it's quite a feat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're kind of like this, like uh, you know, get out of my face. But they, I think they kind of also they had to be cool with it. Yeah, the, the scenes with Ray who is the the young 18-year-old kid who basically tries to join the clash as a roadie. Mm-hmm. Those scenes with Joe and you know Topper and things like that, they were they were they were scripted to a certain extent. They were handed a little bit of dialogue. And on the Rude Boy uh DVD on the extras, they'll show scenes with him and Joe Strummer saying the same thing like eight different times. No. I mean sorry, I was gonna say that I think they really um stitched up Ray Gage by having it 
him with his real name and then making him espouse opinions that he didn't believe in and which were, 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 weren't quite correct, <laughs> which was a bit strange really that, wasn't it? They could have called him anything. Why they, why they chose to call him Ray Gange and, and then have him express views that weren't his own was a very strange decision, I think. I th- and I think that can only come because they, they were making it up as they went along. I think that's got to be it. I know. Did you hear him talk about the film when you met him? Yes. Yes, of course. The first thing I did was grab him and bend his ear for 20 minutes about what, what we was like to make room by. I wasn't letting him away with that. It seems that he he was just innocent is kind of what I get is that he uh, he didn't know that he was going to be such a prominent figure and was kind of caught between the band and the filmmakers being paid, yeah. being paid by the filmmakers, but being friends with The Clash, having six sentences shoved into his hand. And then being like, fit this into a scene. <laughs> yeah. You know, it sounds like if his, if he had known that he was going to get a screenwriting credit, which he feels like he shouldn't have, and had his name, you know, his real name attached, it would have been a different fi- different film for him. Yes, I think so. But, you know, I, I think, you know, you can uh, imbue the filmmakers with malevolent intent. But as I say, I think the main reason for any all that was because they didn't really know what they were doing I don't, I don't think so they kind of had some film and then made a narrative out of it after the effect and the, and one of the ways they could do, show that was to have ray give views that were opposite to joe and let so that joe could have an excuse to talk about what he really felt i suppose but i mean it's all quite naive stuff i mean even the stuff joe's saying you know he's, he's you, you see that he's not great he's never he's not exactly a politician is he he's, he's no He's quite naive in his views. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd rather I'd rather have a naive left wing person who who thinks that something that's for the many is better than something for the few than a naive right wing person who just wants to be the person in the Rolls Royce. But at the end of the day, they're both just two naive young people talking in a pub. Aren't they? I mean, the Clash were young people. You know, I mean, I think Joe was twenty six yeah. and the rest of them were twenty three. Yeah, I mean that was similar. That was similar to the the fall in a way. Because I was, I mean, I was a bit younger. I was 16. Mark was 23, maybe 24. But the gap get, the gap there was like like my uncle, you know. He was like, oh, but so because uh, Paul says that about Joey. He was like his uncle, you know. And you're talking like six, five or six years difference. It was vast in those days, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, they call him old Joe yeah. whenever they talk about him. And it's true, you know, you would go see bands that were 23, 24. And if you're 16 or 17... Yeah, they seemed like adults. Yes, you know, like that they had figured it out. They are in front of you, playing for you. So therefore, a they must be successful. B they figured it out, and C yeah. they're adults. Yes, like the Buscocks were my favorite band too. Wow. So right. for me, I came at the Clash pretty late as well. There, mm-hmm. uh, you couldn't get the debut album in the U.S. before the second album came out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's a different. Different, isn't it? It's different, isn't it? It's got some uh, top, of, top of stuff on there as well. Yeah, it? it does. And so therefore, things were moving so fast in that genre that if you heard something that was kind of light years ahead in terms of songwriting, something could seem quite archaic or rock and roll in that scene. So to me, The Clash yeah. sounded very rock and roll uh, compared to like Wire or The Fall or things like that. Yeah. And so I kind of had to learn to love them backwards. And the Rude Boy, um, when I'd seen it as a youth, even though it was confusing, 
there's no denying how incredible they are live. And I think the film, that's where it really succeeds. Yes. I mean, clearly the, the standout bits are the, are the live. I mean, because the, a lot of those are overdubbed, though, which is worth remembering. A yep. lot of the stuff they had, they, because the sound wasn't so great on the way they filmed it, and they had to overdub it, which kind of makes it perfect in a way, because I don't know if you listen to many Clash bootlegs, but the, their priority wasn't putting in a great performance. So as, as you can see, by the way, they're bouncing around, you know, um, I mean, it's great at a show because they didn't really care about the words and they cared more about looking like they were meaning it than standing there playing to the best of their ability. So, which is great at a gig, but when you come to make a, to release that as live, sometimes it can be a bit lacking. And some of the Clash bootlegs, they are a bit poor. So, but mm. that one is great. I mean, and you, you know, you can see it's cheating, but the whole the whole film is cheating, isn't it? That's yeah. what films are. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with them dubbing them to make them sound as good as you you, you would remember them in your head from being at the gig. That's fair enough, as far as I can see. Yeah, agreed. And but it's still the the first live performance in it is still out of tune and weird and like it's not perfect. It's better. But it no, is no, funny no, when I yeah. when I heard that they had gone in and overdubbed it. I was like, interesting. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of wonky still. It is. It's, it's quite. It's quite. It does. Yeah. I was going to say it's quite an achievement, that isn't it? Because it doesn't sound like it's overdubbed. It doesn't sound pristine and nice. It's quite, and they were they, they recorded them when they were doing Love and Calling, which obviously sounds sonically amazing. Yes. So they wonder if they went in and thought we're going to have to make this sound worse than this. This sounds too good. They must, whoever did it, it was very clever. I, I agree. I, I, and there's things like Joe will hit his hand on the microphone. Yes. There's a, there's a great bit. He does. He does that in what he does. He does. What's my name? When he smacks the the microphone on the floor. And it makes yeah. this amazing noise. And then they, they release that version on the live album, the, the From Here to Eternity, and it's not half as good as it is in the film. I listened to it back today, and it's, it sounds fantastic in the film, but they really missed the opportunity on the live album. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and the, and this, I guess the scene where Mick Jones yells at Ray to get off the stage, that was also uh, yeah. faked. No, I think I think he's claiming at the cameraman. Yeah, he is. And then they shot. They said they shot the part of Ray untangling cords about a year or a year and a half later, which <laughs> which shows by then the Clash were done with the film. You know, they they yes. they basically from May to June. I mean, May to December that year were participants. They're getting disillusioned. They couldn't get an answer what the film was. They were also dealing with their own management and falling apart. Yeah. And so all these things like the stuff with their road manager, Johnny Green, and the stuff with Ray and the sex shops, it, a lot of that stuff was shot to fill gaps, as well as the stuff with the uh, three black teenagers uh, yes. and the storyline of that. You can kind of feel as the film goes on, they're losing material. They just don't have enough to have a film. No, <laughs> yeah, they got too much, too much for a half-hour TV thing, and not enough for a film. So they have to kind of pad it out a bit, don't they? I think. But some of my favorite things are also just things like Topper in a Bruce Lee game of death <laughs> yes. outfit, yeah. doing the punching bag, kicking it, and then beating up yeah. Ray. Yeah, just to be there. Yeah, yeah. For them to be to basically be like, yeah, okay, here's what we're gonna do, then. You know, say these few lines, and at the end, just attack Ray, and you guys just fight it out, and we'll just film from over here. They don't make any 
they don't give any reason why he starts beating them up. They're having a perfectly no. affable conversation. The next thing, he's nothing seven shades of shite out of him for no good reason. I don't know why. Why? Well, you know, he's a punk rocker. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I know that the fall dressed differently than the clash. Yes. Did you, you know, as a youth and being in England at the time, did you feel pressure uh, or pushback for being different? Uh, well, it was, uh, we were certainly... In the early part of the fall, we, we, the big thing, everybody, we dressed completely and utterly normally like you, you would find a bus stop. That was always a big thing of Mark's, that he wouldn't want to dress to the point where he couldn't have normal conversations with normal people. That would have been, I think that would have been self, uh, what's the word, self-destructive, I think, because he got he got his inspiration from talking to people. I don't think he particularly he was particularly enamoured of talking to other musicians. So for him to enter into something where the only people you ever saw were people who thought like you wouldn't be something he would countenance. And, and certainly in the early part of the fall, we all took our kind of, not the, well, the, when I joined, there was Craig and Mark Riley and Steve, we kind of took our view from him really. So we, nobody was dressing up. I got a bit more, I got a bit more uh, into it a bit later on, uh, a bit was uh, under, probably under the influence of the clash and people like that. But uh, certainly in the early part, it was, we were very dressed, very, very down sort of second hand uh, thrift, thrift store clothes, if you like. But no, there was, there was still an edge. If you could still go, if you went to a club, the kind of clubs we went to in Manchester, there was an, you know, so there'd be a punk kind of, uh, or post punk club. And there was walking there or walking out of there. You'd have to keep your wits about you because certain people didn't uh, view you particularly favourably if you like that kind of music. Um, so the, the factory was in Hume, for instance, which was like kind of 15 minutes from the city centre. So, you know, you, you'd have to keep keep looking around while you walk there. And, you know, places like the Electric Circus, which I never got to. I was a bit young for the Electric Circus. You took your life in your hands going there. <laughs> that was really rough to try and hang out there. People didn't trust them, punk rockers. You know, they thought there was definitely... You, you, it's quite hard to communicate just how malevolent people thought punk was. You know, the people were outraged by it. And, you know, people were... You've, you've, you've seen the film of people picketing Sex Pistols gigs and things, and just like, what do you think is going on there? It's four guys playing a gig. I don't know what they thought, whether they were devil-worshipping or something. I don't, but it's unbelievable that the amount of... I mean, I suppose some of it was Sex Pistols' own fault for that Bill Grundy thing. But even then, all they did was swear a bit on the TV. You know, they didn't kill anybody. No, it's amazing. I, you know, and music, obviously, has always been demonised. When I was growing up uh, in the 80s, it was putting stickers on album covers that they had you know material in here that were yeah. going to be bad for youth or backwards masking yeah. oh yeah remember that with that thing at judas priest the judas yeah. priest one was incredible wasn't it the guy two guys shot them shot themselves oh. yeah it's brutal terrible then a lot of the film is the clash getting arrested yeah. getting pushed around you know by promoters and police officers yeah just walking down the street could be a threat it doesn't seem a particularly pleasant experience going on tour with the Clash. Certainly, from some of that film, it seems like every every moment of it's a bit of a pain, isn't it? You know, there's nothing. You know, it's like the tension completely unnecessarily. You know, it just seems like making too hard work of the whole thing. As far as I can see, yeah. While they're traveling in two station wagons, you know, it's like they're not yeah. they're not in a big bus yet. Everything seems really low tech. Yeah. You know, but it's still hilarious. There, there's one scene that I wanted to ask you about with Ray in terms of him as a roadie. I mean, 
the fall, some of the members were roadies before they joined the band. They were. That's right, Steve. Well, Mark started as a roadie first. That was his first sort of in to the band. Mark Riley started as a full roadie, and then when he joined, Stephen Craig started doing a bit. But, I mean, they were unpaid roadies. They weren't getting any money. Right. And then when they joined, that was it. So the roadies were gone. Nobody replaced them. So by the time I joined, we didn't really didn't have roadies. So the, the touring entourage, for want of a much better word, would have been the five or six people in the band, K, and a driver, and that'd be it. So there'll be we know there'll be there's no no techs or any of that nonsense. Or even sometimes you get to a gig and there'd be a couple of students hanging around to help you carry the gear in, but. I mean, we, the, the Clash makers look, you know, they look quite sort of slick compared to how the fall was. Yeah, that's what I was, I was wondering about. I mean, that the, even that they had a small crew, they they had a crew. Yes. For, I don't think I've ever seen anyone polish the bottom of a uh, drum cymbal, like just the legs. I was going to say that. They're getting polishing his cymbals as well, isn't he, and everything. And they don't touch their own gear, the Clash, so, you know, There'd be no question of Mick Jones carrying an amp in, would there? At any point in that, they, they can, you know, you, you can say that they were down to earth and men of the people, but they don't, they don't do any any of the grafting bit, do they? At any point, not at all. But I, I was just really amazed. That's one of the weirdest things is seeing, you know, Johnny Green spitting and polishing the legs of a of a cymbal stand. I just, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think even the biggest band. I can't imagine they're like. No. I really got to get to work on the bottom of this, uh, you know, the stand here. These three legs are getting a little yeah. karate, so, you know. I tell you what, they must have made a fortune on those gigs because they were playing the Apollo in Glasgow Apollo, Apollo in Manchester, places like that. They had two people working for them and the film crew were funded themselves. So their expenses must have been tiny and they were, must have, you got paid quite well, I think, for those kind of venues in them so they must have been making a few bob from the gigs themselves i know they, they keep saying they've got no money in their skin but they, if even if they just kept the takings from those gigs they must have done all right it seems like it yeah i've always been a little confused by that as well and uh, you know again as you know being in a band a lot of it is illusion in terms of oh you you're yes. on beggar's banquet or you're doing that you must be doing all right yeah but yeah those shows you're right it seems like a limited crew they're playing these sold out places it had to go somewhere and it's definitely not to the two station wagons that they're getting away in <laughs> over and over again well let's talk a bit about ray okay because the first time i saw it i was i was confused by him he can come off as like a bit of an oaf yes like a bit of a fool lumbering asleep half the time uh, not a good roadie no moves in like backwards, like in slow motion, <laughs> him trying to take a symbol apart. You just feel like, oh, my, yes. just just give that to me. I'll do it. Yes, that's really, the, it's really frustrating that anybody tries to set the bottom of the hi-hat and you think, for God's sake, just turn it. <laughs> but the more times I've watched it, I just also have a lot of uh, admiration for what he did as an 18-year-old being thrust into this yeah. world. Could you relate to Ray as a as a youth, or what was your feeling on that? I think I think he's quite good. I think he's it's he's quite good to hang the film on, really, because um, once you take the you know the you've got the premise that it's not a documentary just following the clash round and basically maybe interviewed him two or times. If you want to try and make that into a narrative, it's all on him, isn't it? 
So you've got this young lad who's not an actor, and the whole film is on his shoulders, really. I think he does pretty well, really. I mean, he's clearly not an actor, and, and, nor is anybody else in the film, but considering what was on it, what, you know, especially as, you know, it was like a lot of it was improvised or semi-improvised, I think he did pretty well under the circumstances. I mean, they clearly wasn't a massive budget, so they weren't, you know, they weren't getting a million times to do things. But, yeah, it kind of hangs together. Um, it, I think if you'd have got rid of the Thatcher bits and got rid of the, the, the lads getting arrested and just had it that, and you, what would you have got, 40 minutes maybe with some yeah. great clash footage? It would have kind of made sense, I think. When they when you try, they tried to open it out, obviously, and make it something else again, like a, a comment on British society, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's fine. I wouldn't change it. It's good. It is what it is. It's, it's a document in any in any way you look at it. It's a document of that time, isn't it? It's the document of the naivety of the filmmakers. It's a document of what a dour place Britain was at that time. I mean, dear me, in every way, you know, apart from you know, and and just how important these gigs were to the people who were going to them because there was just nothing else, was there? The footage of them playing uh, the Rock Against uh, Racism Carnival. Like over a hundred thousand people, they say, yeah, just you know, march down there, yeah, and it's just explosive, you know. And you can just, you can just, yeah, feel the numbers, you know, of people wanting to push back and be heard. Yeah, because it was mass- massively important in Britain. Rock against racism. There was a similar, well, there was there was a parallel concert in Manchester, in Alexandra Park, which with Buscox, amazingly enough. Um, but you could feel people drifting. To the right, you know, similarly to today in a lot of ways uh, in Britain, people would just, you know, you had that appalling, appalling speech by Eric Clapton in 76, which was one of the main reasons Rock Against Racism was started off in the first place. But the, the right were trying to uh, claim the narrative, you know, as, as again, as they are today. So Rock Against Racism basically said to all the young people, it's not cool to be right wing, you know. Uh, it might be it's propaganda in a lot of ways, but it did that that narrative pushed us forward. It moved um the young people away from the right wing. And it was an amazingly important thing. And you know, there was some great gig that came out of it as well. But it was really, really necessary, the anti-Nazi League and work against racism, because we were moving to a pretty ugly place, I think. And without that, I think we could have been we could have been in trouble, which we were in trouble later on. But you know, it, it, it was really important, and uh, you know, it's important. That that's another reason the film's important because it shows that it shows that whole anti-Nazi thing, and it shows what they were standing up against. There's a there's a bit near the beginning where they contrast the, yeah. the National Front guy and what he's saying. I mean, the appalling stuff he's saying just on the street through a megaphone with a million policemen, by the way, er- earning overtime to give that guy the right to stand in Brixton and say that, spout that bile. I mean, you see the number of policemen who are at that march. It's just, yeah, it's they must have been pulling policemen from all over the country to give them the right to march through there. And then you contrast to the Rock Against, Rock Against Racism guy and he says, I'd like to thank the police for coming out on a very cold day and it's, uh, you know, it's important. And he's dead polite. And he's, but it was, it was a massively important thing, the Rock Against Racism thing. And it, the fact that you've got that on film is if if nothing else, the fact that it's documented that would give uh, would be worth the admission for all uh, on its own. The rude boy, I think. It's also a fortunate time that punk was there. Yeah, I, I mean, do you feel like it moved the needle as a movement in terms of the youth and getting people together? Well, yeah, well, it, the, the rock against racism gigs. Well, certainly, any I would. They were all pretty much 
uh, sharing a space with punk. You know, there weren't so many um, prog rock against racism gigs. Right. Or, you know, or heavy metal rock against racism gigs. I'm sure they must have existed somewhere, but it, they did seem to go arm in arm with young punks and, and new wave, shall we say, for better, want of a better word, in Manchester and London. So, yeah, they, I think it, they went hand in hand. And there was a problem in punk rock where the people were drifting to the right. You know, they were, you were getting the rise of skinheads at gigs, which, again, was just, you know, you'd go and see a band and there'd just be this element in one corner that just threatened to spoil the whole experience and often did. It would spill over where they start attacking people in the audience. And you knew that that was a risk when you went to a gig. So if nothing else, if it got rid of that, then, you know, that was what was important about Rocket Against Racism because it could have gone the other way. It could have been that the norm became sort of oi and that skinhead and all that ugly kind of follow-up to punk, which was just, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't good musically, it wasn't good politically, it wasn't good in any way, really. Yeah, it's interesting. That really happened in 80s American hardcore music too. Yeah. Uh, where skinheads in the US invaded the scene. Um, in the, you know, early to mid eighties. And it was, you know, you could just feel the show change the minute they showed up, mm -hmm. um, you know, just the threat in the air and just, you weren't sure how things were going to go. I saw more than one show where, uh, you know, people chased them out, yeah. you know, it was kind of incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, they'd show up because like an Italian band was playing and they were seeing oh. Hyaline and the Italian band was yelling at them. They, come up on stage and have a fight. It was just incredible. Yeah, that, that happened to us. He invaded the stage at one of, one of our gigs, the Lord of Skinners, invaded the stage at a gig we did in Middlesbrough and sort of suddenly looked up and there was 30 people on stage. It's it's, it's terrifying, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, it's horrible. Also, you know, I think it, it, it took a lot of people away from the scene. Some people just couldn't, they just, they didn't want the chance to be around that danger. Yeah, I was going to ask you when you talked to Ray, was there any insights you had? Well, we talked about a lot of the stuff that a lot of the thing that he said was that, you know, he, he didn't know, you know, that they if he'd have known that they were going to a call it, you know, have him speaking that way, he would never have agreed to be his own name. That was the thing he told me. And he's still quite proud of it, I think. I think he is quite proud of of it as a document. That's what I thought, because when you watch the sort of DVD extras, he, he's a bit embarrassed by it, isn't he? But I think yes. I think in the cold light of day he's quite proud of it, and he's still a massive clash fan, to be honest. So you know, I think he's, he's quite glad he was part of it, and it, it you know it got him out of London, it got him to America, and it kind of changed his life in a way. The interviews he does now, he just he seems like a different person. Yeah, he's I mean he's an adult, but he's yeah <laughs> just super charismatic, funny, smiling in a way that I it just in the film he just. He just feels like an awkward youth, you know, who has a camera on him, yeah. who, who's being told, go dance over in the corner while Joe Strummer plays piano. <laughs> okay. And he's he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Joe's here and the filmmaker's here. Uh, it's it's quite a feat. Yeah, it is, yeah. But I was really charmed by his performance the last time I saw it. I just really believed that he was this guy who was overstepping at times and yeah. wanting his own bed even though he's drunk and not really doing anything and it's quite brave of him in a way quite brave of him in a way for him to say well in this scene you're going to be an asshole and for him to say yeah okay i'll do it you know quite brave of him. Yeah. he didn't have to do it he could have said no i wouldn't say that so i'm not going to say it. but he didn't you know he went along with it to make the film that he thought that they knew 
that he thought obviously that they knew what they were doing and that it, that it would it would help the film, which it kind of does, I suppose. It's an interesting dynamic, that, isn't it, where you have the sort of antagonist of a film, or the protagonist of a film, I should say, not being particularly sympathetic at times. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite good, really. It's quite uh, unusual and quite refreshing. Mick Jones seems like a bit of a villain in the film. He doesn't really trust Ray and is like, I, yeah. I see you. No, dear me, that, that's a poor scene, that, yeah. dear me. But I think at that point, the filmmakers thought they were going to have some sort of punk rock, Hard Day's Night, Truffaut, yeah. Smash with Truffaut, yeah. uh-huh. where, where they're like, oh, we're just capturing the youth and we're with the most exciting band in the world at the moment. Yeah, it is. Although I have said, I have said, Let's get out of this fucking city. At every gig I've ever done since I saw the film. And I, I say that at the end of every gig. <laughs> That's just the best line in the film. Yes, and they, they were absolutely <laughs> yeah. right to. That was in Glasgow, right after being arrested. Yeah, it was yeah, after being arrested, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And um, and the scene with Mick Jones and, and Joe Strummer recording in the studio is pretty amazing yeah. access to just hearing Joe Strummer hyperventilate. Hyperventilating, yeah. It's really beautiful. Like he's just in it. Yeah. But it's so funny. Then they deflate it by having Ray come in and be like, ah, yeah, you know, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's got, he's, got, he's, got that, he's, got, he's got that weird accent on the Ray Gaines. That sort of, I never went to the Locarno. That kind of, <laughs> not kind of what accent is that? And Paul, Paul Simonon's got it as well, a bit as well. Like, you think, who, who speaks like that? Where's, where have you got that voice from? I, I was really curious if they had continued on with the clash, where it would have gone. They obviously uh, staged that scene with um, Paul stealing money in the cab yes. from from his <laughs> date. Like June, yeah, it's a pound out of a purse. Doesn't it? Yeah, and you're like, then that's it, you know. But obviously, <laughs> that's all they had of him. But at some point, yeah. they were like, maybe that's just he's just a young thief. Yeah. Again, it's kind of charming because it's so youthful and, and innocent. Yeah. And obviously the Clash, they signed up for it as aloof as they could be. They wanted to be documented and they wanted to be actors and they wanted to do this thing. Yeah. Um. So even yeah. as critical as Joe was in the end, it was something they signed up for. It may not have been the film they asked for. Um, no, but I was really interested that he just basically wrote it off, and you know, they just never wanted to touch it. Maybe they were just maybe they were just embarrassed by the performance. I don't know. Maybe that was more of it than anything. I don't mean the live performance. I mean the the, the bits the, the bits where they act, if yeah. you will, They're like the one where he's clean cleaning his t shirt in the in the yeah. hotel sink and. Yeah, they're like take three, <laughs> take three, take four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, agreed, agreed, um, and also. You know, they it was a small film crew. They often, except for I think one other show, they just had one camera yeah. facing uh below or from the from behind. The cameraman who was David at the time said that he was pretty scared to go out into the audience or get near the edge of the stage. Um, so there's a lot of filming. Mm-hmm from kind of far away where you see their backs and you see more of the audience. I was going to say, it's good. That there's, a, there's a kind of, a, it kind of parallels them. So the first time you see them on stage, the camera's in the audience because Ray's in the audience mm-hmm. when they do police and thieves. So the right. camera's in the audience looking up at them. And that's another thing that was worth documenting that people forget is the amount of spit that flies across 
as you're playing. I mean, that was that was dis- that was disgusting. That was kind of fizzling out a bit. And I was at the back anyway. I was I was at the back anyway when I joined the fall, but it was still there. You know, people. I'll tell, I'll tell you why I'm going to show my appreciation for this band. I'm going to spit at them throughout. <laughs> it was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting that and I, and I don't. I mean, people say Captain Sensible started it, whatever. But how it ever, how it ever became a mainstream and normalised because it was completely normalised. You go and see the Damned in 19, 1979, 1980, it was just hails of, of spittle flying from the audience to the band. <laughs> well, do you have a favourite uh, live performance from the yeah, film? The, uh, the White Man in Amethyst Palais, I think, is fantastic. It's it's the way they adapt it from the record so that they've got like, the Mick Jones guitar instead of the harmonica bit in the middle. He actually says harmonica before playing a guitar solo and uh, and the only regret about that is the, the, the so this is like the greatest version of the greatest clash single and they cut away to it for some clearly staged uh young lad being thrown out young lad with a cockney accent by the way being thrown out of the glasgow apollo by a roadie by a, a bouncer with a cockney accent uh and why so why they f- feel they need to interrupt that great performance by that i'm, re- I'm really not sure what that's about it's those choices are really strange too. You're absolutely right. They 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 faked bouncer ejection. Yeah. Um. And, and then a and then a fight with Ray with them. Yeah. And then Johnny Green finding them. Yeah. But in the meantime, all this amazing stuff was happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. The Clash <laughs> left the actual show and got arrested. Yeah. 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 They yeah they clearly must have thought well we didn't get any of that we didn't get any of that so. This is a big moment where they all get arrested. So we're going to have to try and find some way of communicating how violent this gig was. And they, they fail miserably by, like I say, having this like 12-year-old lad being beaten to death by two Cockney bouncers, who's clearly laughing his head off at the time. So Yeah, I just love the um, them finding the youth to basically be like, all right, you're going to be thrown around. And they're like, great, sounds fun. Just now, whatever you do, try to get back in. Just scramble to the door. They're going to throw yeah. you hard on the ground. Great. Sounds awesome. Just the excitement of film. Yeah. I wanted to ask you some stuff about, you know, being in the fall that might be parallel to the film. I kept thinking, you know, Ray at one point, you know, gets left behind Yeah. at a, at a show. Did you or anyone in the fall ever get left behind? Carl, Carl was there always... Uh, good for not being where he should be at the time we needed to be him to be there. He was a bit of a loose cannon on that respect. But I think, it, yeah, there's a couple of times after they left him behind in America, that not on the tour I was on, but uh, he, he, he had a singular sort of skill for not being in the right place at the right time. So, uh, so yeah, he was left behind a couple of times. There was there was also the occasion where they left. Um, Kurt Cobain wanted to get on the bus with them and they wouldn't let him on. Kurt Cobain said, Right. We had some kind of some kind of journey they were going to do, which is like something eight hundred miles. And he said, "Can I come with you?" And no, you can't. <laughs> so they left him behind. <laughs> Wasn't Carl also known for just showing up to yes. kind of like appearing out of nowhere? Yeah, there was. The, the, he got sacked apparently. So on American tour, he got sacked towards the beginning of the tour and disappeared. And then just at the end of the tour, he appeared right again on the same plane on the same back. So he'd obviously thought, "Well, they're going on on this date." So yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. Was the uh the fall ever approached about being 
uh, in a documentary or a film? Apparently, I am told that they were offered Erga Music War, which you mentioned before. They were offered that, and Mark turned it down. One of his yeah. uh, this is an NME uh, sort of roundup of the year, and one of his highlights of the year was uh, setting fire to the Erga Music War script. So uh, he, he refused to do that again. It, 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 you know, we did that ridiculous uh, video in 1983 of when we did Perverted by Language, some money appeared from somewhere to make this short form video. So we did videos for Eat Yourself Fitter and a couple of other things. I mean, they clearly, clearly no budget whatsoever. But I mean, the, 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 no, those are amazing though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, was my, that, that was my gateway to the fall, that, wow. that videotape. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that, that thing of it being a video because it was just so we did we did we made like three or four short form videos for kick a conspiracy and things like that and then well they wanted to factory wanted to put it out so it was like what else what other film can you find they wouldn't let us use the old gray whistle test film or with michael clark mm. which is great that's great that old gray whistle test film. and then then they found some film of the fall doing totally wide in new jersey at the mud club but it was such a right it was like this is filmed. You look at it now. The, the contrast between now, where uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a gig that wasn't filmed and up on YouTube a day later, but it was so rare to have film of your of your favorite band then that uh, they, yeah, d- they would just put anything on that you could find. Well, as somebody all the way here on the west coast of the states, just it seemed exotic to me just seeing the 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 type of. Uh, you know, Mark uh, being shot against some sort of wallpaper that looked so ornate. Th- th- this is this is where you this is where you make the uh, case for the red lion in Presswich being exotic, is it? Exactly. I've heard it called a lot of things. I have heard that <laughs> exotic is not one of them. But it just it just you could tell you could tell it was something that meant something to the band. Yeah. Um, and their and <laughs> they're like, what's the easiest place we can shoot that they'll let us shoot? Yes. 100%. Wasn't the live version of Tempo House put on Perverted by Language? Yeah, the te- well, that, that version, yeah, that version that's on the video is the version that's on the album. So we did we did record Tempo House, but I don't, I'm not sure the bass was so good because the whole song's the bass, isn't it? I don't think the bass sounded so great. Right. So, that, so they used the footage from the Hacienda gig we did. Because they, they all... Always filmed. That was quite unusual. The Hacienda always filmed the gigs. There's some great film in the Hacienda from those days. Malcolm uh, Whitehead was uh, the so um, Scott. So not sorry, not uh, Claude. Claude Bessie was like the VJ. Oh, amazing! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know, he's West Coast guy. Yes, yeah, Slash Magazine. Claude, Claude Bowles, yeah. as it yeah, Claude Bowles, as he was known at the time. I mean, what a great guy he was. So he kind of directed the. Um, the perverted by language biz. He's had a lot to do with that. And he, it's him. You can hear his voice interviewing Mark when Mark's on the couch, you know, talking about uh, the book world and things. That's Claude interviewed him. So he was the VJ at the Hacienda. So we did a lot of filming at the Hacienda for the video, but they always filmed the gig. So you can see some amazing footage of like the birthday party and New Order and all kinds of bands. But what's interesting about them is the sound on the film is great. The sound on stage was great, but the sound in the room at the Hacienda was appalling. It was terrible. Yeah. yeah, it was just a warehouse. Yeah, with the stage is where the bar should be, and the bar's where the stage should be. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it clearly is. I mean, anybody would look at that room and say, well, we'll have the stage at that in there. Well, that's where the bar is. But anyway, I wasn't involved in the design of the Hacienda, so there you go. 
I just have a couple of quick other things. On a scale from one to five shirts that Joe Strummer is washing in a sink, <laughs> what do you give the film on a scale from one to five Joe Strummer shirts? I'll give it, I'll give it, I'll give it three shirts, maybe one of them with no sleeves on. You know, nice. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, he did a bit of that, didn't he? Taking the sleeves off your shirt. I did a bit of that as well. It's not a good look, especially you know, hairy armpits. <laughs> is there is there something that would have made the film a four shirt movie for you? It's a funny one, that isn't it? Because it's it's like Jenga. You start taking one thing away, and it can't. Start, you, you could make it a great live footage film, but it'd be twenty minutes long. Yeah. You could make it just about the roadie. And it'd be 40 minutes long and a bit flat, I think. So it is what it is. Why would you change it now at this point in time? Why would you go? It's like it's like saying, I think the White Album would be great if you made it a single. Why on earth would you ever want to make the White Album a single album? Yeah, yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know? It is what it is, yeah. And my last question to you is, uh, Slate's an EP or an LP? It's an LP. If I, if I could have said that any quicker than that, I would have done. It's an LP. I mean, I, I, mean, I think... One of the reasons for me saying that is it means I played on more full LPs, so that's <laughs> obviously a big thing. But I think it certainly, I think it certainly holds its own against any other full LP that I'm on, or possibly that they ever made. I think you know you've got six songs on there, which are all great, and there's a lot of full LPs that don't have six songs on there that are all great, and they all get counted as an LP. So. Yeah. It's, it's, if you're gonna if you're gonna punish it for not having any filler, then and it's 33 RPM, so it's an LP as far as I'm concerned. That's good. It's done. I love it. And and yeah. Paul, I, I want to tell people that the new the new album is great from the House of All. I ordered it. It's, it's Thank you very much. Heavy, beautiful. Um, so amazing yeah. to see you back with you know your brother. Well, me, me we kind we kind of come as a set now, me and Steve. I think. Um, but it, what that was incredible that House of All because I mean it's. We went in the studio, I mean, literally with nothing, have, playing with people. I'd never played with uh, Simon. Um, none of us had played with Pete Greenway. And just to go in and say, well, let's see what happens. It's great fun, and it was a great idea to do. It could have been terrible. But, <laughs> it's know, not. It could well have been. It's not. It's not, no. It's not. It's, it, it, I'm really happy with it. And, you know. We've started playing live. Unfortunately, uh, Pete's not able to play the gigs at the moment, right. but uh, the gigs have the gigs have gone really well, so, and we've got more stuff recorded. So it's it's just a, I'm a bit confused. That's great. Also, yeah. you've written those books for Root Publishing that you've done are amazing. If if people haven't yeah. picked it up already, yeah. have a bleeding guess is obviously preaching to the converted of us all as. Uh, the fall fans, but, but leave the capital yes. was incredible. I had no idea of the history, you know, with hermits, hermits members and 10 CC and all that stuff, it, it, all the way to the, the, the fall and the Smiths utilizing what they, you know, these uh, bands from the sixties had built. Yeah. That was, that was a, that, well, obviously that was the reason I wrote the book really, because every story of Manchester music, there's a, there's, I don't know, you probably have similar over there, but there's a, there's radio stations in, in England called Radio X, which is kind of commercial and it's a lot, you know, they pay, they play Oasis every six minutes and they play, you know, the killers and they play whoever. And they do regularly do polls of the greatest Manchester music of all time. They did one recently, 50 greatest songs from Manchester. There must've been 15 Oasis songs, um, and then 
the oldest mm. song they did was ever fallen in love i mean and i mean and then the next one after that that will have been ceremony by New Order, or not? Maybe Love Will Tear Us Apart. Possibly will have been in there. So there was a lot of there was a lot of New Order, but nothing. So to say before 1978, and you look at the music that you know. I mean, you can say what you like, but about Herman's Hermits, but they were massive. Herman's Hermits. They, they the amount of units they sold and the records they sold in America. And there was a point in America which I always I always bore people with this. There was a time in America where they had three consecutive number ones by Manchester bands. And so, so to start a poll of the greatest Manchester music in 1978 is just bonkers. And then even if they just made records, those people, they would deserve their place in history. But for two members of Herman's Hermits and a member of the Mindbenders to then go on and build the studios in Manchester where they recorded Unknown Pleasures and the first Smiths album and Perverted by Language. I mean, that is, that's a story worth telling, I think. So that was basically why I wrote the book. It's an amazing book, but also, you know, Herman's Hermits, you know, their three movies are not as good as Rude Boy. Uh, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter's not bad. <laughs> not bad. I mean, at least it's set in a real book. Which is the one where they go into space at the end in a rocket. Oh, that's, hold on, hold on. That is the, that is the single craziest film that has ever been, isn't it? What is going on there? Yeah. And that makes that makes that makes Rude Boy look like Citizen Kane. Oh yeah. No, there was a good run there where, you know, certain bands, Herman's Hermits obviously had personality, you know, the Beatles. They Clark Five had one, didn't they? They Clark Five. Is it catches if you can? Yeah, I quite enjoy that. It's yeah. it's pretty dark, but um Spencer Davis group, Ghost Goes Gear. Yeah. And you're just like every not every band is funny you know, or charismatic. It's kind of incredible. <laughs> I, I think that anytime uh, a, a band is documented and, and kind of gets to uh, do some acting chops, I, I think it's fascinating. So it is. I really appreciate your time so much. Really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed it. So, 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 so the next time we release a Blu-ray of Rude Boy, they'll, they can put on the back better than the Herman's Hermits movie. They can put, Paul, Paul you put that on the back. Yeah, better than the second one. Yes, yes. better than the second one. All right, yes. really, thank, thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> no, thank you. Pleasure to speak to you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.